The best in Bitcoin made audible. You're listening to Bitcoin Audible with Guy Swan. What's up, guys? Welcome back to Bitcoin Audible with Guy Swan. That is me, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. And we are jumping into part two of the Discovering Bitcoin series by Giacomo Zucco. Um, And uh, like I've said before, this is a great series. We just covered part one on Wednesday of this week. So skip one episode back and you will find it. Uh, If you haven't listened to it, this is this is part two, so it's not going to make a whole lot of sense without the baseline um, established over there. And this is just a really good introductory series to the entire history of uh, money and exchange, just kind of a broad conceptual foundation of everything leading up uh, to Bitcoin from cavemen to the Lightning Network as Giacomo titles it, uh, titles it, and uh, this was on Bitcoin Magazine, of course. So uh, don't forget to check those out. We will have all the links and uh, uh, tags and everything in the show notes. But let's go ahead and jump in to Discovering Bitcoin Part 2. About People. This is the second installment of Bitcoiner Giacomo Zucco's series, Discovering Bitcoin, a brief overview from cavemen to the Lightning Network. Read the introduction to his series and Discovering Bitcoin Part 1 about time. In this installment, we will build on the previously acquired strategies of storing wealth, investing that stored wealth, and increasing productivity and focusing on goods with physical hardness and good scaleness to explore the concepts of exchange, specialization, and darkness. From solitary consumption to exchange. Welcome back, dear reader. Let's further explore the period of monetary pseudo-history prior to fiat money, which we call Plan A, this time focusing on the topic of people and on the question, who. As we established in Part 1, you are now a very successful caveman. You own and manage a huge fleet of fishing boats, catching more fish than you could eat in a lifetime. While you managed to leave immediate consumption behind, learning the art of saving and investing, you are still practicing solitary consumption. Not that you are necessarily alone. There might be someone around you. But you are not exchanging with anyone, so it doesn't really matter if there is just one caveman or hundreds of cavemen or cavewomen or cave non-binary people. You have to forgive the lack of politically correct sensibility in these articles. We are discussing primitive times. Each day you catch 1,000 fish eat two, and store the rest. After a short while, your utility function gets flat with respect to the amount of fish you catch and the number of people around you. Consider this scenario. Apart from fishing, each cave person can also draw two jars of water from the local spring every day and survive on drinking just one. What if, instead of eating two fish and storing 998, you start storing just 997 and exchanging one with Alice, a nice cave woman who can give you an extra jar of water in return. In this way, your utility increases, and after two days, Alice could start working on her own fishing rod. 
Clearly, the number of possible exchanges can grow with the number of cave people in your local cave economy. But not that much, admittedly. First of all, it's not all that hard for you to draw some water by yourself. Furthermore, Alice is also able to fish and save one fish per day like you did. Why should she even exchange with you? Not impressed. 2. Specialization But why should every process of saving and investing deal with fish? The important insight is that you cave people are not all the same. You each have different skills, inclinations, beliefs, preferences, priorities, and experience. Alice could become a great industrialist in the water sector, for example, producing tons and tons of jarred water a day. Bob, a talented cave artist, could specialize in nice rock paintings. So you suggest to your cave friends that they should adopt this new incredible strategy, specialization. Now everybody can focus on some specific skill, and every utility function can keep growing and growing, both with time and with the number of diverse people involved in the trade. This is what we call division of labor the very cornerstone of civilization. Specialization also improves investment and innovation, since even very simple tools needed for industry would be prohibitively hard to build without any help from people in other industries. As you may know, even building just a pencil requires cooperation between thousands of different people from all over the world. A link to Leonard Reed's famous article, iPencil and many complex tools are needed, even just to create other tools. It's a virtuous cycle. Specialization sparks innovation, encouraging cave people to invest time in creating tools, tool-making tools included, increasing productivity, and freeing up more time, which in turn can be used to specialize even further or to reach an even greater number and variety of cave people to exchange with thereby increasing the division of labor even further, and so on. Hardness and scaleness strike again. Of course, not every kind of good can be easily passed along many different hands. The main attributes that turned out to be useful to efficiently store some arbitrary quantity of a good also helped to transfer it. A good with good physical hardness which preserves its physical features at a unitary level when stored for a certain period of time, will typically also preserve the same features when transferred over a certain number of people, and vice versa. You would have a hard time naming a kind of good that's resistant to storage, but not to transfer, or to transfer, but not storage. A good with good scaleness, which is efficiently stored in small fractions, divisibility, or in large aggregates, portability, will also show the same features when passed from hand to hand instead of stored. What we're trying to express now is not exactly what economists would call saleability across space, possibly redundant with the concept of portability. It's actually closer to the concept of saleability across people. A new attribute, darkness. A good that's durable enough to maintain its unitary physical properties over many exchanges and with enough scaleness to be exchanged in huge multiples or in small fractions is comparatively better as far as saleability across people is concerned. 
But these two attributes alone still don't entirely cover the broader concept. You and your cave friends want to exchange with a growing number of different people. The more different, the better, since diversity increases the chances of specialization. But diversity can also increase the chances of conflict and distrust. You know and like Alice and Bob, but you don't really know, let alone like, all of these new people. You want to exchange goods that don't carry the personal mark of previous owners and aren't connected with a specific person or tribe. Otherwise, it would be difficult for them to be accepted across large scopes of trade. Furthermore, the more people exchange, the more they draw the attention of Caveman Mallory, a local bully who doesn't want to increase his wealth by providing value, but by tracking, controlling, censoring, and taxing exchanges. When Mallory's lust for control arrives at the point that he tries to ban exchanges between cavemen not, quote, registered with him, a lot of cave people are excluded from the scope of trade. This is the phenomenon known as financial exclusion, and it reduces utility for everybody. Some goods are ideal for mitigating such problems. For example, bearer instruments, which don't carry the personal information of previous owners, making it easy for everyone to deny having been involved in any specific transaction. When you deal with such goods, Mallory could at most ban you from the market because of who you are and what you are doing now, or not doing, such as not paying him a bribe, but not because of who the previous owners were yourself included, and what they did. This isn't an ideological problem, but a functional one. A good cannot easily be traded if the receiver has to verify the entire history of the previous owners in order to know how much political risk, including persecution, censorship, taxation, and debt, he is actually inheriting. But it clearly involves moral, political, and ethical aspects like the importance of privacy as a human right. I will use the term darkness to address this attribute. In the context of Bitcoin, many terms are used. Privacy, anonymity, and deniability, which focus on people more than on assets, but also untraceability and fungibility, which instead focus on the indistinguishability of asset units but is in turn strictly connected with deniability, since a common way Bitcoin users can be spied upon is by leveraging the lack of fungibility of units, as we will see in detail in Part 6. Together, deniability and fungibility create the property of darkness. So far, we've learned how to exchange your wealth, giving up your solitary lifestyle for a cooperative one. How to specialize in the production of something specific, advising your trade partners to do the same, and how to focus on goods that show good hardness and scaleness, but also good darkness. But how can you exchange with a growing number of people if the complexity of all the different combinations of goods, from the demand and the supply points of view, grows even faster? This is something you will discover in Discovering Bitcoin, Part 3, Introducing Money. All right, that wraps up Part 2 of Discovering Bitcoin About People by Giacomo Zucco and, of course, 
uh, published on bitcoinmagazine.com. Let's go ahead and hit our sponsor really quick. And I want to talk, I want to give a guy's take on this piece before we wrap up the week of Bitcoin Audible. So let's hit our sponsor and we'll come right back. So this piece is one is where Giacomo, we, we first get introduced to the idea of exchange and how specialization begins to make an economy vastly more efficient. And I don't think it's possible to exaggerate or to, or to underestimate just how um, more efficient an economy of specialization is. Um, and, and you start to realize that the attributes of goods that can be exchanged, uh, this, the, the idea of hardness, of scaleness, um, these, these words that he has, but the, the concepts are real. You know, they're very, very um, particular characteristics that a good, uh, a good good, <laughs> a decent good for um, exchange and for storing value and for kind of cementing value across time uh, really is. And it ends up becoming uh, the, that one that serves those roles the best. The, he uses the term, you know, scaleness, uh, darkness, um, and uh, what's, what's the other one that he, he uses? Oh, oh hardness, hardness, um, to just cover the concepts of um, scarcity, fungibility, uh, divisibility, portability, and all the other characteristics of money. And in, in this, though, when you, when you start moving into exchange and you start thinking about how people organize when, uh, when you begin to uh, create specialization within an economy and you realize just how powerful that organization is. And one of the most fascinating things about it from an economics perspective is that it's emergent, is that because of uh, the good of money, because of money as the role in society, it enables us to actually account for individual valuations of things and specialize efficiently rather than pointlessly. Like, like we don't really know. We, by default, it is totally impossible for us to know everything about every participant in the economy, to know how many people really are making this good or, or that good or whatever it is. What we need are a dense signals. We need some sort of dense information aggregate in order to uh, align our behavior, to align our decisions with reality, reality that by necessity we cannot know. That's the very goal of economics. It's, to, it's how a system organizes itself when by necessity the individual participants cannot be cognizant, cannot be consciously aware of all of the vast stores of information of each individual participant added together. It is explicitly in figuring out those systems that allow us to organize outside of the scope at which something can be managed because something with a million people can't be managed. He links to that great, um, he actually links to the Milton Friedman video explaining the piece of iPencil, which is a Leonard Reed piece, which we have read, uh, which we've read on this show. I will link to the read. I can't remember what number it is. 
but I, if you have never heard iPencil, it is one of the most brilliant pieces about like the specialization and the, com the complexity of something that's seemingly simple and more importantly, so shockingly cheap, so low cost, even though it literally is the cooperation of almost countless different people and industries and areas all across the world and Milton Friedman goes through in this video and like just lists out like a, a regular wooden number two pencil and talks about the different pieces of it and where all of the different areas come from uh, all the different like where the metal comes from where the eraser comes from where the the graphite comes from where the paint comes from where the glue that holds it together like all of these things and the vast machine of cooperation that made that possible for a trivial sum of money. And yet there is no overarching pencil czar. There's nobody who directs all of those industries to do exactly, to, to mine or um, uh, cut down exactly the right number of trees or mine just the right amount of ore and metal. Like, there's nothing in charge of it. And yet... It's so efficient that it can produce and profitably, it can profitably produce a wood number two pencil that is touched by all the corners of the earth in the products and uh, industries and skills that need to actually go into making the thing for such a low sum that you could just not care if you accidentally left one somewhere, that they're basically a socialized cost. It's a penny, it's a nickel, whatever it is. It's enough that you could leave it around somewhere and not care that you lost it. This is a, this is a phenomenon. This is a, literally a miracle of economic organization. And that this simply emerges is one of the most profound things that you could possibly try to wrap your head around. I still just never get anybody who thinks that economics is boring or that it's, you know, a bunch of math problems or whatever. It's like, no, you just weren't taught real economics. Economics is fascinating. But one thing, one thing that Giacomo brings up in this piece that I thought was really interesting was the darkness aspect. When we're talking about fungibility and deniability, and he brings up basically the tax man, Mallory, in his story. But this is kind of where you get into the idea of why privacy is so important or why the money not having a history is so important. And I don't mean like a history like, you know, Bitcoin has a chain of signatures or whatever. That's a history for validation that it is a real Bitcoin, but a history in the sense that it is not attached to any specific transaction that then is a ethical debt that is attached to the money that you now have. That it is a clean slate, that is a Bitcoin is a Bitcoin is a Bitcoin end of story. And this is why people, this, this is why privacy is actually fundamental to sound money. Um, and it's why so many people, aside from just the normal human right to privacy, uh, it, it's also why the core developers, it, it's why it's a very big issue and something that Bitcoiners have been talking about since the beginning is that we need additional ways to get privacy in the Bitcoin protocol. Uh, but obviously, we don't always, we also don't want to get that at the cost of being able to verify the supply because that's trading one potential benefit to sound money for, uh, for another huge cost to 
the potential of losing sound money. And if it's not just if it's not just a flat benefit end of story, we don't want it. Um, and that's that's kind of one of the things. If we're changing the Bitcoin protocol, uh, it better be only a benefit. Uh, and, and that's why that's another thing about Taproot. Um, I mean, I know this is kind of unrelated to the article here, but um, Taproot is one of those things that uh, takes away all of the income or hides all the encumbrances of a transaction and shows only the very bare minimum of what is needed. Um, so, you know, hashtag Taproot 2020. <laughs> I think this is a huge protocol upgrade that is... Uh, massively important and I'm, I'm super excited about it so i'm, I'm going to be pushing it i'm going to be talking about it all the time until we actually get it i uh, hope that's okay because you know you, you got to deal with it but that darkness aspect is something that you get with a bearer instrument because when you have it it is simply that the the possessor is the one who has it it doesn't have that history it is the recognition of its value in and of itself Whereas like a debt or something is a counterparty to the debtor, to, to the one who has you know, taken out the loan, um, uh, the, the one that's owed back to. There's always, a liabil there's always a liable party in that. And because of that, a, a debt-based money always has counterparty risk. Whereas a bearer asset, um, one that is a positive value, not, not someone else's liability, but in and of itself, the, the, the concrete representation of value from the past, that is something that can sustainably and positively serve the role of money. And we'll get to exactly what that means and after like hitting these, these, these main pieces for why specialization is important, even in a a, you know, small community where you can actively organize where one person can be like, I'm just going to get the fish. I'll just get the water. I'll just build the huts. I'll just take care of the, uh, you know, make the clothing or, you know, whatever it is. Everybody divides up those things. But no matter what, there's as soon as you reach to a point where you have scaled past where Dunbar's number is uh, something that's referred to a lot in trying to scale a society past where you know the relationships, we know, you know who and how you can trust people, and you can know that you can agree on how much of what to make and that people will play along, that you actually have relationships with them. But as soon as you start to scale uh, uh, past that where you have to deal with enemies, where you have to deal with people you don't trust, that breaks down. And that's why in, you know, caveman times, in tribes, thousands of years ago, is you would see societies that stopped, that stopped working after they were 150, 200 people. They just start breaking down. They end up bifurcating and uh, basically at war until they break down back into smaller societies. That is actually an economic problem. It is the inability to scale past the point where you can't socially trust someone. But that is the role that money plays in society. How do we get past that without succumbing or without being vulnerable to the corruption and control of a few powerful people? And that is part of what we're going to get into with uh, part three, as Giacomo introduces money and what that role is, how it greatly, 
greatly, it multiplies the benefits of specialization and makes the mechanism of deciding who specializes in what far more efficient and far more accurate. And we will get to that and we will break it down. And there's so many other pieces if you want to um, listen to them on the show. Obviously, Bitcoin Audible, we've had about a billion freaking episodes now uh, on this. Uh, I will link to iPencil. Uh, in the show notes. If you have not listened to it, highly recommended. Uh, but we will close this one out here again. This is Discovering Bitcoin Part 2 About People by Giacomo Zucco and uh, on Bitcoin Magazine. Thank you to both of them, Giacomo and Bitcoin Magazine, for making this available. Uh, this is a really fun series and I hope you guys are enjoying it. Um, uh, I hope you all have a wonderful weekend. I am out. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to the show. This is Bitcoin Audible, and I am Guy Swan, and we have so much stuff coming up, so don't forget to subscribe. Much love to the Let's Talk Bitcoin Network for sharing out Bitcoin Audible to their amazing audience and for all the other great shows that the uh, LTB has on their network. Um, longtime listener, uh, if you're not subscribed to that, you definitely should be. But until next time, I'm Guy Swan. Take it easy, everybody.